Welcome to uh, Political D podcast uh, number 16. We have a couple, I think, of fairly major issues uh, we want to chat about today. Uh, I think we'll start that by just having a quick comment on the reaction of the United States Democrats to uh, what is going on in Westminster around the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Internal Market Bill. First impression on that is that whilst you have uh, you have two key elements there, one you have uh, the Democrats who are taking a particular lead are uh, both a generation that would have been uh, embedded in the notion of Irish America, albeit that that electoral base is largely now dissipated, uh, but it's still clinging to that old Irish American, a romantic view of what Ireland ought to be. And then a younger generation that have uh, basically been brought up seemingly in, in a very uh, narrow view of Northern Ireland that is particularly uh, wedded to physical force republicanism. The other aspect, and I think it's something that hasn't really been mentioned uh, in, in most of the comments I've seen, is that whatever the Democrats see Trump as broadly favouring, that they will almost by by force of, of natural reaction, oppose. So if Trump is saying that he thinks a UK-USA free trade deal is a good thing, the Democrats would oppose it, whether it was a good thing or not. Yes, um, it's a kind of a coalition, really, between those instinctively anti-Trump Democrats and, and this old-fashioned Irish-American lobby who sees things just through the prism of, of Irish nationalism. And it's very kind of idiosyncratic interpretation of the Belfast Agreement. And, and that uh, view of the Belfast Agreement doesn't really pay any attention to the contents of it. And it's certainly not interested in the principle of consent and the fact that it underpins Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom. It just really sees the Belfast Agreement as a a staging post, I suppose, on the road to some kind of all-Ireland polity and anything that stands in the way of that, it will interpret as an attack on the Belfast Agreement. So we might get into kind of looking at the internal uh, market bill in more detail a little bit later, but the, the idea that they have is that this somehow brings back into play hard border on the island of Ireland rather than uh, this kind of hard border that we see emerging in the Irish Sea. And that seems to have been enough to, to prompt this hysterical reaction from Irish America and from, from nationalism generally. Yeah, I don't even think they go so deep into, if you ask them the detail of the internal market bill, I doubt if they could tell you what it was any more than they could actually probably tell you what the Good Friday Agreement says either. I think well, they just have an, they have an impression fostered by their proxies in, in Irish nationalism, that, that, that this is somehow threatening to their project? Well, I think the worrying aspect is that the like of Peter King, he seems to have found common cause quite comfortably, or others have found common cause with him from what you might have thought once were moderate nationalism. So I, I think that that coalition seems to have broadened out somewhat, which is worrying, uh, with people not really looking at what is actually being recommended or suggested, but just jumping on it as a chance to be both anti-Brit, which I think is a, a, a worrying um, trend within 
the southern polity, um, uh, that anti, uh, that that anglophobic uh, nature of of Irish politics seems to be getting stronger. And in terms of uh, going forward, uh, there's little room to have any rational discussion uh, with with this. It's not based on any any understanding of issues; just simply raw emotion. Well, we seem to have got to the point, particularly in Northern Ireland, where we've just um, lined up so much on, on one or other team that we've forgotten about what's in the best interests of our economy and our businesses and everything else. So you've had this extraordinary situation over the, over the past while where the government bring in this bill to kind of mitigate some of the more obnoxious elements of the withdrawal agreement. And, and you know, we're, we're talking about things like um, imposing exit declarations on Northern Ireland companies? Yeah, there have always been contradictions within the, mm. the assertion of UK sovereignty, which is what Brexit was about, and then the uh, withdrawal agreement and particularly the protocol, which seemed to run up against that quite badly. There were two issues in, in, in and around there. One is that the, both the EU and the UK had different ideas of what they were signing. And we can, you can probably spend a lot longer than this podcast working out what each of them thought. But I think on the British point of view, it was simply something that what was necessary rather than what the EU see, sees it as a form of, of exerting control uh, in its legalistic way. So we, we, we've got that element. And then you've just got a, an ambiguity there that means it can be almost what anybody wants it to be. Uh, I think the critic, uh, I think you brought my attention to a critic article today, which says ambiguity is at the heart of the protocol. And that is where, or the, the withdrawal agreement and the protocol, which actually is why we're in the state we're in, because it's very difficult to make an argument either way, or maybe maybe too easy to make an argument either way, but mm. no real means of resolving that argument. Well, I think what I what I took from the article was that the government's interpretation of the withdrawal agreement was based on on its um, sort of idea that it was com- a constructive and ambiguous uh, if those are the terms that you want to use but actually some of the content in it was fairly specific okay. um, for instance Northern Ireland was going to be included in the EU customs code and if the EU customs code applies to Northern Ireland then export uh, declarations are required and certainly I mean I, I've been drawing attention from the moment this was signed to the fact that as it stands, the at-risk category of goods that are required to pay tariffs include everything for manufacturing, i.e. everything for processing. And all of that content was there very explicitly in the document, and yet the government had been kind of telling us over you know, the best part of 10 months now that this wasn't going to happen. And I suppose the assumption might have been that they were going to negotiate this away or that once we got into the joint committee stage of things, this joint committee that was going to oversee the implementation of the deal, then that some of the rough edges would be sort of filed off and it would become less of a problem for Northern Ireland companies. But you see, that hasn't happened. So they're kind of trying to recover ground with this bill and make sure that its implementation isn't as sweeping as the EU are saying it needs to be. And of course, the the problem with the bill is we won't really know what 
importance it has until we know whether or not there is an agreement with the EU. All of this is just rolling on. The most frustrating part of this is, as you say, 10 months after an agreement, we're still no further on in terms of knowing how to organise going forward into 2021. All the way along, we've had this issue with sequencing. We've had things that need to be sorted out before we can uh, see the sort of the shape of something else. And yet that something else has, for some reason, uh, had, had to be sorted out before you can get to So everything's kind of backward and mixed up. It's very difficult to get to the end, end of it in that, uh, in that kind of regimented way because you're not able to sort out trade. Uh, you're not able to sort out borders before you know what's going to happen with trade. Yeah. And you're not allowed to get to the trade bit until you sort out the borders. So and then and then in the middle of all that, of course, you have the it, it wouldn't be unfair to say the debacle of the management of the the bill itself and some of the statements around it. Brandon Lewis, I think, being the most incredible statement uh, in, in Westminster, probably because it was the most unnecessary statement. It was certainly one that was pre-prepared, and therefore any suggestion that it was off the cuff you can just dismiss as being fantasy uh, or, or someone trying to just gloss over the fact that they had that statement ready because he had the example, which was very specific and quite detailed that he read off a sheet. That was a pre-prepared statement by, by someone in government who thought that that explained everything. It was just quite incredible. The communications management around this, let alone the, the thinking, just it beggars belief on. I, I just have, I don't think I've ever seen as uh, it's not so much incompetent as just slapdash attitude to whatever's coming. It seems to be everything of the moment can be justified, but without really thinking of what's what's next, what's after. It's so bad that at times you wonder whether there's some hidden method behind it. Um, you know, is is this is, is this a chance to pick a fight with the EU ahead of conceding something else? I mean, I actually don't think that that is the case because I'm more a, a proponent of, of the cock-up uh, theory than yeah. conspiracy theories. But because the messaging has been so bad and so inconsistent and so seemingly self-defeating at times, you can't help but wonder occasionally, am I missing, am I missing something? Is there some great plan behind this that I have no. not been concerned? No, I don't see any great plan in it. And, and that's perhaps the problem. It, it just seems unnecessary. You could have achieved the same outcome and actually made yourself look virtuous. Instead, they've achieved an outcome, because uh, I think they'll get the bill passed all right, but just looking shambolic and not really in charge of what's going on. So it would be easy to simply uh, make the case that this was the UK uh, as a sovereign nation, outside the EU as a sovereign nation, they had to look after their citizens first. I mean, that would have been a great call on a unionist basis, as it were, or, or on a union basis. But instead, they've allowed themselves to get caught up in a whole international Ferrari that gives, you know, I don't think they'll ever be allowed um, to forget that uh, statement. And it's going to be applied. In fact, I think I heard this morning, uh, they're already the beginning of this being applied in other areas, mm. you know, that this government is willing to break the law. This area over here that has nothing to do um, with that, particular instance so uh, well, I just think it's a hostage fortune. I, I suppose that's why I have a problem with 
the idea that the constructive ambiguity was always in the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, it, the, if, if the constructive ambiguity was in the Northern Ireland Protocol, then you know the government was quite within its rights to present Terrifying. its interpretation yeah. and then work that back to the text and try and justify it and then kind of haggle it out with the EU about uh, some sort of compromise um, that, that they would come to. But it, it doesn't seem that that's so much the case. It seems that the, the government thought there was a constructive uh, interpretation to it that actually wasn't there when it came to, to looking at the kind of legal... But, that, but in, 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 le in legal terms, now that the UK is outside the EU, which it is, parliamentary sovereignty kicks in. So to a large extent, the law is whatever the government says it is. Um, I, I know that, that that will, there are all sorts of other issues on the side. Well, except when you come out and say, we're going to do this and it breaks the law. And it breaks the law, yeah, exactly. You know, but, but they could have, you know, in other words, there was a way through it. Yes. That would have been both, um, it would, would have raised the, the, uh, the moral force of the government in terms of looking after the union, looking after the, people uh, of, of, of the United Kingdom um, and the, the reinforcing the fact that, that you know Parliament was sovereign um, but instead they just seem to have dug themselves a hole and then kept digging. Well it, you think back to a time whenever UK diplomacy was seen the world over as some sort of uh, really Machiavellian and clever uh, machine. Perfidious album. Uh, perfidious Albion and, and all the rest of it, and and boy, have we coughed Sunk. up that um, uh, that impression. Although I don't think that I, I think that's a long that that may have been a long term drift than an immediate issue. But even so, you you'd, you'd like to have seen a bit of a reversal here. But that that ambiguity thing, if we just want to move that quickly over back into the into the current state of COVID, it seems to permeate across the whole of government in almost everything they're doing at the moment. Uh, and again, we've got hit the, the issue, which is big for us, which is obviously the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and trade uh, within the United Kingdom. And then also in COVID, where we have the government seemingly messaging largely as if we had learned nothing from March, April, May time and creating messaging and, and just not being on top of the practicalities of things. Um, and, I, and I know there's an argument that the testing is... Testing is a, a crude uh, measure. It's just allowed itself to become seemingly disorganized. It's in contrast in a way to the, the impressions that you're getting anyway, because we don't know these things in the detail that we would for the United Kingdom. But you get the impression that, say, in France and Germany, there's a determination to get things back to normal and they're working yeah. to keep the disease under control. But at the same time, they're working out ways of living with it. And I mean, I, I'm a, a great football supporter, as you know, David. Um, yes. I'm seeing uh, crowds at, at French football matches. I'm seeing the German authorities um, making plans to, to get uh, crowds back to Bundesliga matches. In the United Kingdom, we've got the government telling people to go back to work, to go back to their offices. We want to get the economy started again. And at the same time, we're threatened now with with a further complete lockdown in October during half term. Um, we've got local lockdowns maybe are maybe fair enough if we're kind of taking this sort of whack-a-mole approach. 
but we're also getting a kind of a messaging that's suppressing business because at the areas where there is a problem, people aren't out in the high streets buying and they aren't out dining and everything else. You know, well, no, and I think people are just getting weary of the contradictions within things. I mean, here in Northern Ireland, on the one hand, you have, you have Robin Swan criticising Van Morrison for not echoing what uh, the Northern Ireland government once said. We're on a pivot. We're on a, a, on a cusp of a, another calamity. The, the issue of the Holy Lands has been big this past week. Belfast has been restricted severely in terms of people meeting, as in, as in Lisburn. And then if we look at the Holy Lands, and I'm going to leave out about the kids going home at weekends with their kit bags full of, uh, of, of clothes to their parents. The Holy Lands and the partying and all that, and there's been a bit of a crackdown. But as we've seen before, these things... There's a crackdown for as long as it's in the news cycle and then everything just sort of passes by. There is clearly an issue that the government wants us to believe exists in Belfast. And yet they've just announced, and let's just keep the Holy Lands as a small area. You know, they, they've talked about it in terms of this is putting everybody at risk. And then they announced, oh, and by the way, next week the Hatfield opens on the Ormer Road. Oh, yeah. wow. how exactly does that all work? I mean, I, I think they... You need to have a bit of continuity within a message. You've got to have people look at that and not be able to say, really? Uh, and I think too many times at the moment, people are just looking at it and going, how on earth does that work? Well, there's a number of things going on there. I mean, the, the pubs should have been open in June or June. July, um, whenever they were opened in the rest of the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, they'd come up with ways and means that are maybe a little bit stricter than what we've had in Northern Ireland of controlling who enters a pub and, and yeah. taking back and trace information. But we didn't have that for the simple reason, if we're truthful, that Sinn Féin wouldn't allow it because we yeah, had to yeah. be in line with the, the Republic of Ireland. So now you've got this farcical situation where the pubs are just opening as uh, the numbers go back up and as we have this kind of um, scaremongering or caution or whatever you want to call it about the the, the disease going back up again and at the same time in the holy lands you've got young people going back uh, to university uh, young people in that part of, of belfast uh for historical reasons whatever are predominantly from nationalist communities predominantly from rural uh, nationalist communities and they are following the leadership of, of Sinn Féin, a party that's pontificated about COVID the whole way along, but doesn't follow the rules itself. So what chance is there of those young people following the, the rules too when they, they don't see that it's applicable to them? When they look at the political leadership that seems to be quite happy to say the guidelines don't apply to us. And exactly. Bringing, bringing hundreds of people together, it's okay really. And I mean, it, it's, very, it's very easy to pontificate about rules and to demand that rules are brought in if you don't intend to follow them, if they, yeah. they apply to you. One of the reasons why people struggle to know why, well, apart from the, the lack of political leadership with, from, from particularly our Sinn Féin, in actions, if not their words, I, I think, again, it comes back to simply not having a clear direction of where this is going. You're constantly being told we're heading for a second lockdown, but... You know, a lot of the, the upticks have been, we know that the cluster, there's been clusters in Craig Avenue around the hospital. Uh, the Southern Trust has seen admissions, got, you know, the Southern Trust, Daisy Hill Hospital, there's been a cluster around, uh, around Daisy Hill. 
Yeah, uh, and we know because you can watch the numbers on the on their uh, statistics board that the numbers of care homes have been increasing in terms of outbreaks. So there needs to be in all this uh, testing, they must know precisely where these outbreaks are happening, because you could just put the postcodes on the map and see where the clusters are gathering, either by outbreak or by by living, uh, by by home addresses. So you could probably track that quite easily, and I, I think that that needs to come through a bit more. You know, the practical explanation for things rather than just sort of fourth horse of apocalypse again. Yeah, pe- people will be more um, ready to accept whatever kind of um, exigencies are are acquired, so long as they see a rational explanation for restricting them or or asking them to stay at home. Leadership has to be actions and not ju- uh, uh, and not simply words. Uh, and I think they, you know, my, my concern is that we've had months of knowing uh, the impact of COVID. I'd be more uh, reassured if uh, the health department was telling us their preparation for the second wave that was reasonable and rational, or that accepting maybe looking at what experience we can see from outside Northern Ireland, like like mm-hmm. Sweden, Germany, France. Uh, where, where things are opening up and saying, you can open up if proper precautions are taken uh, that are reasonable and sensible, or maybe that we have to accept that even though the virus is out there, that we need to protect the vulnerable, care homes, hospital environments, the elderly perhaps uh, more generally, uh, that we have to be extra protective there, but really everybody else just needs to get on with life. Yeah, well, I think we're both probably on the same page in this, David, is because uh, we think that um, that while you need to be sensible and take the disease seriously, you've also got to find a way of living with it and keeping businesses open and not um, going back into the kind of complete lockdown situation that we had previously, because if that's going to happen, if it's maybe going to happen you know, two or three times that we keep opening things up and then closing them off again as soon as there's a slight resurgence of of COVID then will do irreparable economic damage and never be able to put it right? Well, I, I, I just feel that we've had 800 deaths that are in some way attributable to COVID, not necessarily entirely attributable to COVID, but attributable in one way or another. But my biggest fear is that there is a caseload of deaths coming towards us in the next two, three years from cancers that haven't been identified or haven't been treated, from heart issues that aren't being spotted soon enough, and from many people who, who have illnesses that uh, should be routinely addressed that will not be because people just can't get access to or haven't been able to uh, access, or maybe feel um, that they're duty-bound not to bother the doctor over this period. Well, we stopped we stopped the normal work of the NHS for a number of, number of months, and it's only just now beginning to get back to uh, treating its the, the full sort of spectrum of problems that, that people have. That's going to have created problems, but we have to be really, really careful um, if our intention is to is to stop looking at that full spectrum of problems again and, and just hunker down for COVID because. The, the deeper you get into that kind of way of thinking, the deeper the problems will be as you come out of it. 
across all our discussion today, I think the, the, point, the point that comes through is we need a great deal more clear thinking, which would lead to greater clarity and reassurance of the public on many aspects of government policy, both locally and nationally. Uh, and that our politicians really need to step up to the mark at the moment. And they're just not, apparently, just not up to the task from what we're currently seeing. Absolutely. Let's leave it there and uh, speak to you again in a few weeks' time. Thanks, David. Cheers, John.